Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Washing the footy can now legally drink in Australia, but not stateside. That's because this, our round seven preview, is our 18th episode. I'm Benjamin Castle coming to you once again from Berkeley, California. And I'm Ethan Castle coming to you once again from South San Francisco, California. Heading into this round, the injury bug continues to claim Ruckman as its greatest prizes, and COVID continues to hit one top side. Between that and other news and thoughts, we have no time to waste, so let's begin with the round opener on Friday night in Perth. West Coast hosts Richmond, and the Tigers will wipe off the stadium with the Eagles. Next up. All right, realistically, though, let's actually go through and preview this game. This one is the latest start time so far this year, though there's going to be a later one next week, another one in Perth. Friday morning on the 29th, we'll get going 3.10 a.m. on the West Coast. If you're on the East Coast, you can sleep and then just wake up early. It's at 6, 10 in the morning. Local time in Perth, 6, 10 p.m. Local time for Tigers fans and anyone watching back along Australia's eastern seaboard, 8, 10. Eagles enter this game at 1 and 5. They are in 17th. Richmond at 2 and 4. They enter this one sitting in 12th place. These teams played a hell of a game last year in round 13, also at Optus Stadium, in which West Coast scored the final 26 points and Josh Kennedy kicked the winning goal with 36 seconds left to put the Eagles home by four. Liam Ryan's kick that set up Kennedy, I don't think was 15 meters. They called it. The broadcasters were saying it barely was. And then I remember at the end, Dusty tried to bomb one, but Shannon Hearns saved it. And really, I don't think it ever got better than that for the Eagles. But I remember being extremely animated about that game. And I don't know how I kept it together enough to not wake up the rest of the house with that one. Both trips to Perth last year for the Tigers resulted in close losses and a very shitty long flight home. Even though they've got a pretty young roster with a lot of guys who weren't involved in that game or the game against Fremantle. They're going to be coming in wanting to watch the taste of that out of their mouths. As we recorded this, news just popped up on Twitter from the AFL about Richmond's roster for this week. No, Dustin Martin will not be playing. That's really no surprise, but he has been back at training. Trent Totchen has been ruled out once again, and Robbie Tarrant has been ruled out. Tarrant's definitely a bit more of a surprise there to me, but it's not like they have any depth issues. We've really liked how they've been able to move starting for the back with Jaden Short and Nathan Broad. And then a bit further up the ground, we both remarked on how natural the Tigers look going through Nick Flawstone now that he's back. From Richmond's perspective, I'm looking to see just how they deploy Flawstone if they try to run everything through him, 
or if maybe they go away from that, which would in turn tell that they probably were just doing it to try to exploit some sort of mismatch against Melbourne. Well, the great thing is for them, with what they showed without Flosson, they're still perfectly capable of working through short and broad. So having Flosson in there might be the optimal situation, but it's not like they don't have a plan B or a plan C. Additionally, for the Tigers, Sidney Stack and Kane Lambert will make their season debuts with Jack Ross, Ryan Mansell, and Matt Parker all omitted. Ethan, I know you've liked some of what Parker's done this year, but he hasn't been as prominent these past couple rounds. This will also be the 200th game for the Thorn and every other team's side known as Tom Lynch. He's played 131 with the Suns, and this round opener will be his 69th. Nice with Richmond. Meanwhile, you know that a lot of things for the Eagles are going to have to start out back because their interceptors in their defensive 50 are their saving grace. And getting McGovern back will obviously help with that some. In terms of the Eagles injury situation, Elliot Yeo is concussed because he's always hurt. He was born with glass bones and paper skin. Meanwhile, Andrew Gaff and Jeremy McGovern are expected back. Richmond favored by only nine and a half, which seems exceptionally low to me. Yes, the Tigers aren't what they were. Yes, the game's in Perth. Yes, they're without Dustin Martin. But consider that the Eagles haven't played well in Perth. They've actually played better away so far. Not that they've played especially well anywhere, realistically. The game that they won, the other team lost more than they wanted, that being Collingwood. And then I still don't understand how a half-waffle side nearly beat North Melbourne in round two. But North gonna North. And Eagles gonna Eagles. I think that game in hindsight is more of a negative reflection on North than it is a positive one on the Eagles. What can the Eagles do to actually make this game interesting, though? Well, first things first, if McGovern's back, I think the score is going to look more respectable regardless. I just think there needs to be greater connections going through the middle of the ground. You saw a glimpse of it at the start of last week with Tim Kelly getting a lot of the ball early, but it also doesn't help that he can't get on the right side of any kick. More than anything for the Eagles, I just want to see greater effort overall. Once Port went on their run in the second quarter, the team just looked lost. They looked out of it. A couple of the older players kept going because they don't have an off switch, but it's clear that some of the players do. And that's particularly surprising when it comes to the younger part of the list who ought to be fighting for every minute they can get on the ground. Speaking of the younger part of that group, there's the potential for 24-year-old Greg Clark to finally make his debut. And then also a question of whether Hugh Dixon will be available. He's dealing with a calf complaint. Will be a tall task for anyone to deal with the physicality of Toby Nankervis. It's unfortunate we don't get to see the nankervis Natanui matchup. That would be a lot of fun. But we could, depending on Nick's timetable, when the teams meet again at the MCG in round 16. We've got five Saturday games for you this week, or a couple of those starting on Friday in the U.S. A lot of overlap this round, unfortunately. But the very first game of the Saturday slate is arguably the biggest. There are two games that really stand out this round. One of those being Geelong hosting Fremantle at Cardinia Park, Saturday afternoon in Australia, Friday night in the United States. It'll be an 8.45 p.m. bounce here in the Pacific time zone, 11.45 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Friday the 29th. Fans in Western Australia can watch the Dockers starting at 11.45 a.m. 
And in Geelong, the bounce will be at 1.45 p.m. Geelong come in at sixth on the ladder at 4-2. and two. Fremantle, the shock of the season thus far to many? Not for us, sitting at 5-1, and one, second place on the ladder. The last couple of years, these teams have met at Optus, blowout Geelong wins. In 2020, a complete shit show for Fremantle, where they were held to just 16 points. Last season, it was a Thursday game, and the Dockers underwhelmed. It was one of the games that really defined their season as a team that couldn't kick straight. They lost by 69, 100-31, and they kicked just 3-13. For the second week in a row, Patrick Dangerfield's calf will keep him out of action, and Jack Henry needs more time for his foot to heal, meaning the Cats' lineup will remain unchanged. Most notably, that means Ali Dempsey will play once again, and I know we're both happy about that. Meanwhile, Gary Rowan will see his first VFL action of the calendar year as his mini preseason gets underway. I think of it like a baseball player's extended spring training. The Dockers will once again be without Heath Chapman and Hayden Young. They were in protocols last week, and they're still out. Meanwhile, this will be Lockie Schultz's 50th game and Darcy Tucker's 100th. Now, one big advantage the Cats are going to have, they will not be facing Sean Darcy, so it should be another week where Reese Stanley and Mark Blitzovs are in good shape to control the hitouts. It's been a really good year for Stanley, who I targeted in our season preview as someone who really needed to bounce back. And so far, he has. That means it's game on for Lloyd Meek, and we knew that as soon as Darcy failed his concussion test last round. Nat Five also remains three to four weeks away, although him being out hasn't meant all that much, clearly. However, the big news is that Matt Taverner is out with a hamstring strain. He didn't repeat his seven-goal performance this past round, but he's probably the straightest kick on the team. And so that's obviously a gigantic blow against a Geelong side that has the best key forward tandem in the competition. What makes this game so interesting for me, there are a couple of factors. First off, how do the Cats deploy Mark O'Connor? I don't think without Taverner, there's really one guy that you single out as, this is the guy we really want to tag. I actually disagree. I think Andrew Brayshaw would be that guy. Brayshaw is probably a top five player in the competition this season. And considering what O'Connor was able to do to limit the ground that Lockie Neal gained, I think that Brayshaw is probably the best matchup in order to achieve a similar effect. You bring up a good point there, that O'Connor's not just a guy who tags forwards. There could be a space for him there. My other question is, what does Fremantle do to handle the Tom and Jerry combo, Hawkins and Cameron? I really like the Dockers' defense. Do they kind of do it by committee? Do they kind of make it a three-on-two thing like Hawthorne tried to do? Or do they just kind of go one-on-one with each of them? I don't think that's where Jordan Clark is going to make his impact on this game, though. I think Jordan Clark has a better chance of neutralizing Brad Close than almost any other defender. As I've mentioned, I love Close in that sort of slingshot role where he rockets forward. And I think Clark has the speed to be able to meet him head-on and neutralize that. So that's where Clark could really impact the game. He might get a goal because first game back at Geelong. But I think where he really can impact this game is with his speed on the defensive side. As for that potential three-on-two, I think Brennan Cox, Alex Pierce, and Griffin Logue, each of which had at least pretty good games last week against Carlton, are a pretty good combination to fill the role that the Hawthorne fullbacks had in the Easter Monday clash. It's unlikely to stop them completely, as we saw in that game as well, but I think it's going to do enough to disrupt the usual flow for Geelong. And I wonder if that defensive success may force some of their midfielders to push a bit more forward. 
Logue is the sort of guy who could end up being a massive liability against really high level competition in a game like this. But I did really enjoy how he played last week. The other area that I think could really favor Fremantle is kind of on the wing if they try to line up Nathan O'Driscoll with Max Holmes. Now, I like Max Holmes, but if they turn that into a matchup for this game, I think it's one that could really lean the Dockers way just because I think O'Driscoll is turning into a really talented player very quickly. Geelong are favored by 18 and a half at the time recording per Bovada. And considering what we know about the outs for each side, I think that makes sense. Dangerfield has to sit again, and it's highly unlikely for Jack Henry to be playing. But Darcy and Darcy and Tavener are much more impactful outs on this contest than the potential issues for Geelong. And considering the home ground advantage that Geelong has and the way that they can really use that to their advantage in terms of letting Brad Close run and do his thing, I understand why the line is where it is. So that's where I'm going to disagree with you. I think this line, which before the Tabiner news was 14 and a half, was too high to begin with, even with Geelong playing this game at home. I still think this is a game the Cats win just because it's at home. I would feel completely different if the game was in Perth. But I think it's a game that maybe you're looking at more like the game they had against Brisbane, a game they win by like 10. And maybe it works to the Dockers' advantage that it's an early game because night game with a big crowd at Cardinia Park would probably amplify things, although I'm sure it's still going to be a great turnout. And maybe it works against the Dockers that it's a bit earlier because of their biological clock. That's something that is talked about a lot in college football and some in the NFL, you know, taking a West Coast team, sticking them on the East Coast and making them play at what's very early in the morning for them. But I think this is going to be a really fun game and one that's not going to be decided until very late. I hope I'm wrong. I hope the Cats run away with this one, but I think they're going to be tested pretty well. I also, I agree that it's going to be a pretty good test. I just think that they're going to be able to get closer to that three-goal separation by the time the final siren rolls around. However, my focus will not be on Geelong and Fremantle, because as we split things up in terms of getting this content to you in the best way possible, when games overlap, and considering Ethan is the Cats fan here, I will have my eyes turned toward the Adelaide Oval, where the Crows host the Giants. That will just 25 minutes after Geelong and Fremantle get underway, so that's 9.10 p.m. Pacific time on Friday the 29th, 12.10 a.m. Eastern on Saturday the 3rd for our American fans. In Adelaide, it'll be a 1.40 p.m. bounce. That means it's a 2.10 p.m. start in New South Wales and the other eastern states. The Crows come in at a rather intriguing 3-3 three and three considering how they've gotten their wins. They're currently sitting 10th on the ladder, while the Giants are 15th and remain as hard to read as ever. These two teams met in this exact same time slot at the Adelaide Oval in round seven last year. Same bat time, same bat channel. And the Giants won that one by 67. The Crows kicked an abysmal 415, which is hard to believe with that forward group. And they were getting blasted throughout that game. Obviously, teams' fortunes have changed since then on both sides. We initially thought these lineups wouldn't change that much, and while the only changes yet for the Crows are on the bench, with Andrew McPherson and Darcy Fogarty being named there, the Giants have omitted Jake Stein and Tanner Brune, as well as last week's unused medical sub, Matt DeBoer. Jesse Hogan, who was managed last week, will return, and also in for Greater Western Sydney, is the last player they added ahead of this season. Defender Cooper Hamilton, he'll make his debut, and with how much the Giants need defensive help, 
I'm a bit surprised Leon Cameron hadn't turned to him sooner. I've had a hard time reading the Giants, yes, but I've also had a hard time reading the Crows considering just where their success has come from in each of their wins. It seems like it's come from a different spot each time. This past round was the first time we were both impressed with their defense, and it was their fullback trio that really stole the show for me. The trio of Jordan Butts, Tom Duday, and Billy Frampton. With those things considered, I still don't think Adelaide's defense is that good as well as they played last week. I don't think either team is very good defensively, and this could shape up to be a really, really high-scoring and fun game. But ultimately, if you had to pick which defense is going to be tougher, it's going to be the Crows, which I didn't think I'd be saying in comparison to really any team in the entire competition other than maybe Essendon. I think a lot of it also depends on where Leon Cameron is going to end up deploying a couple players. We saw Connor Iden play much of last round forward, and that's something that really surprised us considering what the Giants already have up there. And how I'd say Iden has held his own in defense this season, and with the absence of Phil Davis, you'd think that Iden would be one of the more solid picks to stay in the back half. The funny thing is, I thought Iden did do a pretty good job playing farther forward. It was just a weird situation more than anything. It was taking something from a position that's already weak and moving it to a position that's more of a strength. And I'm not sure what Leon Cameron's ultimate goal out of all of that was. As I mentioned during our recap the other day, I'm wondering if maybe their best bet is to kind of reverse engineer this thing and figure out, all right, which of our forwards are the best defensively? Because we have enough guys who can score. At least that's how I'd go about it. It also reminds me of the situation at Collingwood with Darcy Moore ending up going back and ending up being even better as a full pack than a full forward. And and maybe doing what you said, Ethan, will also help the Giants be able to just move the ball through the ground more fluidly. They had some difficulty last week just getting things right once they had the ball. And that's kind of surprising considering their midfield depth with Canelio Ward, Taranto. I think if you have a couple forwards that are playing out back to facilitate those connections, they could be moving a lot more smoothly. The line on this game seems low to me. Adelaide favored by six and a half. I think they're in a position to win this game by a lot more, especially considering they beat Richmond by 19. And other than one brief stretch in the third quarter, we're pretty clearly the better team in that game. Maybe the idea is just that they aren't going to be able to do this for a third week in a row because they're coming off back-to-back really good performances. And I think that's probably the best counter-argument against the Crows right now because the way they played these last couple games, they haven't given much reason to doubt them. Makes me think about how they began the season last year, three wins of their first four, and then fell down the ladder pretty quickly. I'm wondering if there's that same sort of unconscious expectation from a lot of betters, or maybe it's conscious. But there's also a lot of potential for the Adelaide forward group to play better. Joshua Shelley didn't have his best game last round. Elliot Himmelberg wasn't heard from from the first time in a while. Lachlan Gallant didn't get the ball that much. He did have a couple nice plays near the end of the game, but I'm looking for him to be more involved. Is this the part where we talk about how Riley Philthorpe should be in the lineup again? No, because he's hurt. Well, that's all that question. He did suffer a slight setback in the sand full. He doesn't have any structural damage to his knee, but perhaps Gallant has earned a reprieve on the back of that news. 
Two things have been absolutely unstoppable this year in the AFL. The Melbourne Demons and teams with caretaker coaches. So what happens when you put the two together? We just found out today that Simon Goodwin is in COVID protocols, along with three of the Demons players. Adam Uze, who could be a candidate to get a coaching job after this season, is going to fill in as the coach. But the Demons will be without Luke Jackson, Kaiseya Pickett, and Tom Sparrow as they take on Hawthorne at the MCG. I've also just learned that Harrison Petty has been placed in protocols, but Jake Lever, Jack Viney, and Tom McDonald will all return for Melbourne. Viney and Lever were in protocols this past week. McDonald was down the VFL, but Max gone being without his partner in Rug Rover Crime at Jackson is a substantial loss, and that hole isn't exactly easily filled. I'll add a third thing that's been nigh unstoppable this season. Hawthorne in the first quarter. Now, Chankwath Jaff and Mitch Lewis remained out of the side with their hamstring injuries, but they didn't need either of them to come out of the gates blazing last round in Launceston. Additionally for the Hawks, Denver Granger Morass, Finn McGinnis, and Josh Ward are out of the side this week with Lockie Bramble re-entering and Jackson Callow making his debut. It's too bad Callow didn't get that honor last week because he's a Tasmanian native and previously played for North Launceston, who are the main tenant of Utah Stadium. When would someone watch this game if they wanted to see if the Hawks will start strong yet again? Well, hopefully you're not a Crows or Giants fan, or hopefully the game is pretty much decided at that point, because this one starts at 4.35 p.m. local time at the G on Saturday, April 30th. So for American viewers, that is 2.35 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Saturday the 30th, 11.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Friday the 29th. Of course, Melbourne are the only remaining undefeated team in the competition, while Hawthorne are at 500, 3-3, having lost to the Sydney Swans on Anzac Day in a game that suddenly had its scales tipped the other way in the fourth quarter, maybe just because the Hawks ran out of gas on a longer round. These teams met twice last year. First in round five, a game the Demons won by 50. Then they played again in an empty MCG in round 18, and ended up tying at 79. A couple of other things for the Hawks to mention this week. Jager O'Meara did serve as captain the last couple of weeks in place of Ben McAvoy. James Sicily is going to now handle the captaincy for the next month. And this will be Sicily's 100th game, so what a week for him to be given that honor. Obviously, the biggest question is, how do those Melbourne absences shape this game? It already changed the line from 30 and a half down to 25 and a half. It definitely gives the Hawks a bit of a reprieve in the ruck where they won't have to deal with Luke Jackson, though they will still have to deal with, at least as of now, unless there are further changes, Max gone. And obviously Hawthorne's still playing without Ned Reeves. But as you alluded to, what could be the most compelling part of this game is the first few minutes, because the last few weeks, Hawthorne's come out on fire. That's been a very positive trend for them this year, even if some games they haven't been able to keep it up. I want to see what does Melbourne do to try to counter that, and will the Melbourne zone that usually sucks the life out of teams and slows them down and makes sure they always have men back to handle counterattacks be equipped to handle what Hawthorne does to start games? So that should be really fun to watch how it plays out tactically. In terms of how Melbourne combats their COVID outs from last round, I'm wondering... Who's going to end up filling that full forward spot that is now left vacant in Kazi's absence? Do they want to try to load the goal square with an extra tall in Sam Wiedemann, perhaps? 
Is this going to be a chance for Alex Neil Bolin to get some more balls closer to the goal mouth and maybe get back into form there? And if that's the case, who are we going to see moving up toward half forward? I'm wondering if maybe we'll see Christian Petraka end up going forward, and maybe that will be what it takes for him to actually kick more accurately toward goal, because he's one of only a handful of players thus far this season who has had a behind in every contest. From last week's lineup to this week, one of the obvious moves is to deploy James Harmsmore. He served as an interchange last week, and he only was on the ground for 69% of the game. Nice. Nice. But they can obviously deploy him more. But this will be a bit of a test to their depth. Maybe not so much in who they roll out as their starting 18, but in those other four in the injury sub, they could be challenged for the first time in a while because their depth has been so good. This finally throws a wrench into that. And going back to something you said pretty early on in our discussion of this one, I'm glad that you talked about Uze as a potential head coach candidate. He has gotten very good reviews for his work in terms of kicking accuracy, which is no surprise given what he did during his playing career. I was thinking just the other day about who might be under consideration to succeed Leon Cameron at Greater Western Sydney, and he's one of the first names that I thought of. So we have some question marks about Melbourne and Hawthorne in terms of the COVID and injury dominoes there. And we also have a whole lot of question marks when it comes to the simultaneous games that end Saturday action. We'll start with the game that ought to be a whole lot rainier, that being St. Kilda facing Port Adelaide at Kazali Stadium outside of Cairns. As we've mentioned before, we love some of these regional sites Tends to be some pretty entertaining games here. Last year, there was the thriller against Adelaide where Thilthorpe kicked the crazy winning goal. This one will get underway, as will the next game, but we'll remind you that anyway. On Saturday, April 30th, 2.25 a.m. for us on the West Coast of the United States, 5.25 if you're on the East Coast, and 7.25 p.m. if you're on the Eastern Seaboard of Australia. So if you're back in Adelaide, it would be at 6.55. These teams are right about at the reverse of where we thought they would be in the standings through six rounds. St. Kilda, fifth place among the gaggle of teams at 5-1. and one. Port Adelaide in 14th at 1-5, and five, having beaten the bye, that is the West Coast Eagles, this past round. Yes, Collingwood, you lost to the bye. Port Adelaide and St. Kilda played twice last year, Port Adelaide winning both of those. They played round six, the Anzac round, at the Adelaide Oval. Power won that one by 54. They played again in an empty Marvel Stadium in round 18, which the Power won by 13. Now, in a lot of the prior games, we've talked about who won't be playing. In this game, most of the injury-related news, at least to this point, and again, we've still got a few days to go, and things can be fluid, things can change, but most of the discussion has been about who's going to be back for each team rather than who's going to be absent. And there is no bigger in for either side than current Saint and former Power Ruckman Patty Ryder who is returning from his bullshit two-game suspension. Ryder's return is even more pressing than usual, considering that last week Jack Hayes was lost for the season due to an ACL rupture, and Rowan Marshall injured his quad late. Tom Campbell, a veteran of 54 games with the Bulldogs and North, will make his Saints debut as their second ruck. Robbie Gray should be good to go for Port Adelaide. You would think that one of Xavier Dersma or Miles Bergman will be the one to replace Trent Dumont in the lineup. Dersma had a really good performance in the Sandful, whereas Bergman was a late scratch with illness, replaced by Carl Amon, who ended up turning in one of his best games of the year. What's so fun about any game in Cairns, as we've said, it's hot and humid. These are not favorable conditions to play football in. 
Could it be something that one team thrives in and the other struggles in? Possible. I think more likely when we see adverse conditions for any type of football, whether it be American, Australian, soccer, usually tends to be an equalizing factor unless one team is far more familiar with it than the other. And considering that this is only a secondary home for St. Kilda, I don't think either team will be that familiar with it, which is why the line of eight and a half I get, although I would still probably favor St. Kilda by more. Maybe there are some betters who really think that Port Adelaide righted the ship last week, and it wasn't just that they beat up on punching bag. I'm not sure how much the fluidity that Port got through the midfield with the return of Ollie Wines and good showings from Dan Houston, Travis Boak, and a properly placed Connor Rosie. I will emphasize that again and again because I don't know why it took so long for Ken Hinckley to put him in the proper place. I doubt that they'll be able to move things nearly as cleanly in the rain. The current forecast for around game time on Saturday has around a 40% chance of rain with humidity around 87% and weather in the low to mid 20s Celsius, which is the mid 70s Fahrenheit. Now, the good news is it doesn't look like it should ever rain that hard, but it should be consistently sticky and slippery. Sort of thing that can make handling the ball tough, can make kicking difficult, and can definitely wear players down if they aren't conditioned well. Although, with their showing in second half so far this year, I don't think there's any questioning St. Kilda's conditioning. Wouldn't be shocked if this were a more inaccurate game in terms of kicking overall, although we might not be able to tell with Max King. As long as he avoids the left pocket, he should be in good shape. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thank you so much for listening to our thoughts on a sport that's played halfway around the world from where we take it in. We really enjoy growing this community and being part of just the greater AFL discourse, whether it's with fellow Americans or Australians or wherever you may be. And we'd love for you to reach out to us. Tell us where you're from, what teams you support, what your thoughts are on the footy in general, whether you think we're right or we're dead wrong, probably dead wrong because we're dumb Americans. You can talk to us on our Twitter at Americans Footy. I personally am at BenjaminHK01. I am at Castle Media, that's Castle with a K, and my cat, Brian Harambe, named after the greatest player of all time and the bravest gorilla of all time, is available on Instagram at cat named Brian. The other game going on to wrap up Saturday night is the much anticipated Not Makai Bowl 4. Carlton hosting North Melbourne at Marvel Stadium. I guess you could put hosting in quotes because they both play games there, although Carlton also plays some at the G. This one gets underway at 2.25 a.m. on the West Coast of the United States, 5.25 a.m. on the East Coast of the United States, 7.25 p.m. local time in Melbourne. We're calling this Not Mackay Bowl 4 because although Harry Mackay has been consistently at AFL level since 2017, Ben only played the closing round that year, not at all in 2018. He played at the start of 2019, and from there you're thinking, all right, they're finally going to face off. But each of the past three years, that hasn't been the case. Ben didn't play at AFL level again after round four in 2019, and Harry was injured 
when they should have faced off in 20 and 21. This time around, Ben is the definitive reason why they're not going to be matching up for the first time in the big time, because Ben was suspended for rough conduct against Reese Stanley in the fourth quarter last round. In the recap show, I had said that I didn't recall the play at all because it happened late in the game. But going back and watching it, yeah, it's worth a one-week suspension. That takes away the one redeeming aspect of North Melbourne's defense from last week. So North Melbourne's defense is going to be in trouble like they've been pretty much every game this year. And that, more than anything, is the reason why North Melbourne are sitting at the very bottom of the ladder with an abysmal percentage of 60.6, though I really shouldn't be talking because the Eagles are only six-tenths of a percent higher. For any American listeners, anyone who's been following the sport that's confused how the percentage works, it's basically point differential, but expressed in the form of a percentage. It's just points for divided by points against. And I think it's fairer than just straight up point differential because in a sport that can have such a range of scoring, it can account for a team's preferred pace of play. And that can vary widely from team to team. Carlton are definitely a team that have done well going faster and they've lived and died by that throughout six rounds. They've got a four and two mark to show for it and they're sitting in seventh after having fallen to Fremantle at Optus Stadium last round. Now, both of Carlton's losses this year have one major thing in common, and that's Mark Pittenett going down injured. He's got a PCL injury and should be out for an estimated two to three months. I've said before that adjusting to an injury mid-game is different than knowing coming in that you're going to be playing without someone. You can adjust tactically much more when you know throughout the week we're playing without him, and now it's going to be not just a week. It's going to be many weeks, but it's obviously a major weakness that they're going to have to deal with. Tom DeConing has a literally and figuratively tall task ahead of him as he matches up against North's Ruck tandem. However, said tandem won't be Todd Goldstein and Tristan Jerry, but rather Goldstein and Callum Coleman-Jones. Jerry's going to be out at least a month with a bone stress injury in his foot that has manifested as a hotspot. Coleman-Jones had a very nice showing in the VFL last week, so I'm glad he's getting this chance, even if it's because of an injury to someone else. And this is a big opportunity for Coleman Jones to prove his worth in a two-ruck setup because, because he's only appeared thus far in North Colors in round one when David Noah went with three rucks and Coleman Jones got just four touches then. Additionally, North are getting Jaden Stevenson back after he missed last round due to illness. And holy cow, Aiden Bonner is not going to be the medical sub. He's actually been included on the regular interchange bench. And this is one of the few teams that North Melbourne actually has decent history against in the past few years. They played in round 19 last year at an empty Marvel Stadium. Seems like a lot of the teams they're playing this round matched up around rounds 18 or 19 last year. Anyway, North Melbourne won that game by 39. A whole host of changes for the Blues, along with Pitnet, Luke Parks, and George Hewitt are injured. Hewitt the biggest out other than Pitnet probably this round. Jordan Boyd, Matthew Cottrell have both been omitted. Will Setterfield is sick. So all in all, it's going to be five new players for the Blues compared to last week. Jack Carroll is making his debut. Congratulations to him. He was added in place of Hewitt. Liam Stocker is making his season debut. Lockie O'Brien is in. And Matthew Kennedy and Jack Silvani are returning after probably having been Carlton's most prominent outs last week in Perth. We know Carlton likes to go fast. 
North Melbourne seems like they vary things a bit more. I'm wondering, though, how much of that is a desired game plan and how much of that is just them struggling as a team and perhaps not having an identity as a result of that. What I really want to see from North Melbourne this week is a better game for Taron Thomas. I totally get how difficult it can be to succeed in your first game back from an injury. We've seen that with a lot of guys. And Thomas came back a little bit sooner than expected. But I'd like to see more out of him, mostly because I enjoy watching him on a team where there aren't that many players that are that enjoyable to watch. I'd also like to see another good game out of Jason Horn Francis. He was pretty quiet last week. Frankly, their only bright spot last week was Ben Mackay, and now they're playing without him. So if you're trying to spin this into a positive for the Kangaroos, nowhere to go but up. A positive for the Blues requires much more than a win. Looking at who they're facing, this needs to be convincing. And if you're wearing navy blue watching this game, you're probably going to see more than anything for complete quarters. This is definitely a good teams win, great teams cover situation. Speaking of, the line is 26 and a half. Obviously, Carlton being favored. We probably don't even need to mention that Carlton's favored. You probably knew that. If you're a Gold Coast Suns fan, and I know you're out there, you have round seven circled on the calendar. Aside from Q Clash, this is your biggest game of the year because it is your team's only trip to the G in 2022. You're taking on Collingwood, and damn if your fans won't show. They didn't disappoint in their lone trip to the G last year. They beat Collingwood by 24 in this same round, round seven, though that was a Saturday game, and this will technically be a Sunday game. That was probably the point at which we really realized that Collingwood were in deep trouble. Yes, they had already started one and five, but there's no bigger sign than falling to the Suns at the G. This year, things look a bit more even between the sides coming into this one. Collingwood are 3-3, three and three, sitting in 8th place after a pretty exciting Anzac Day win over Essendon, in which Jack Ginneman kicked 5 goals to claim the Anzac medal. Meanwhile, the Suns fell flat on their faces and their asses and every part of themselves, hosting Q-Clash 22 and getting blown off their own oval. 52 points doesn't even begin to describe how humiliating that was. Look at some of the graphics that show just how many easy shots they gave up to the Lions. As we mentioned the other day, I thought their problem wasn't their kicking inaccuracy. I thought it was their defense. And their defense is going to be a little bit thinner this week as it was just revealed that Will Powell is going to be out with a hamstring injury. That said, it looks like there's a good chance that Jai Farrow, Jack Lukosius, and Malcolm Roses get in. Collingwood has some pretty big shoes to fill as well. Big shoes figuratively and literally, I mean, I'd assume with how tall Brody Grundy and Nathan Kruger are that they wear pretty good sized shoes. And you know what big shoes mean? Brody Grundy's PCL injury is going to keep him out two to three months, while Nathan Kruger is out likely for the whole season after dislocating his shoulder once again. We both thought for most of this week that Mason Cox would come back into the side as a second ruck supporting Darcy Cameron. The ruck is where he belongs, but he's only been listed as an emergency for this week. Instead, the beneficiary is Aiden Begg, who is making his debut, a long-awaited debut for a lot of Collingwood fans after having been picked up in last year's midseason draft. He'll be Cameron's ruck support. Trent Bianco is likely also in for Collingwood, having kicked five goals of his own in the VFL last week. For some reason, 
the Essendon versus Collingwood VFL and AFL games overlapped a bit. I don't understand why you might not have the VFL game as a curtain raiser at the G. May not be the most ideal, considering that there's another game going on in Tasmania at the time of the VFL match, but but the VFL contest would probably see an uptick in attendance regardless. Or why not just put it the day or two prior? That way fans will be able to attend both, unless the Anzac Day tradition is as strong in the reserves game as it is for the main sides. And if it was strong in the reserves game, they'd probably have a tradition of playing it as a curtain raiser, which also would provide an opportunity for more food and drink sales and the MCG raking in more money. But that's kind of an irrelevant tangent to this. The question is, can Gold Coast do anything on defense? I think they're in for another rough one. As much as I've liked how Collins has played for them, I don't like their defense overall. The game against Carlton was a rare bright spot. And I think Jordan Degoe is going to bounce back after being pretty quiet last week. Last week was a lot of Majacek, a lot of Ginevan. I think Jordan Degoe is going to have his game this week while Ginevan and Majacek are in a bit of a quieter but still significant role. The fact that Collingwood is only favored by 12 and a half is pretty alarming. And I'm not sure to which team that speaks more, especially considering their opposite results last round. Is there just some sort of relief that Collingwood aren't all that? I think that this is a good matchup for them. I think that despite how strong the Gold Coast midfield trio is, I imagine that Matt Rowell will probably be used poorly because he's being coached by Stuart Dew. And I just think Collingwood has the numbers and the youth to outrun them. The day they can this is that's really where the Daycost brothers could factor in really well. Lipinski and McGinnis as well going further forward. I just really don't think this is going to be as close as the law. I don't think this is going to be anywhere nearly as close as the line. I just really don't think the line is accurate on this one. I don't either, admittedly. Most weeks, I've really agreed with where most lines have been set. I think there are more this week that I disagree with, and this is one of those. This is a double matchup this year. These teams will play again in round 16 at Metricon Stadium. And by then, who knows where Collingwood will be, and who knows where Stewart Dew will be. The middle game of the Sunday triple header, which will overlap in part with each of the other games, though we'll never have all three games running at once, barring some sort of weird delay or something like that. The Bulldogs hosting Essendon at Marvel Stadium. This one gets underway for us watching from the West Coast of the United States at 10.20 p.m. Saturday night. If you're on the East Coast of the U.S., 1.20 in the morning on Sunday and local time, 3.20 p.m., the Bulldogs come into this one off of another disappointing loss. They sit at 2-4. and four. They're in 11th. Essendon showed encouraging signs, but were undone by a Collingwood team that had one of its most accurate kicking games of all time. The Bombers sit in 16th place at 1-5. and five. These teams matched up twice last year. In round 21, Essendon beat the Bulldogs by 13 points at an empty Marvel Stadium. And then in the first elimination final last year out in Launceston to ensure that they had a crowd, the Bulldogs easily went through to the semifinal, winning by 49 as they kicked accurately while the Bombers simply did not. And they just about outplayed them in every other aspect as well. This is actually the first finals rematch since the Sydney Derby and grand final rematch were both played in round one. So it's been a minute. Excited to finally have one. As successful as both these teams were last year, both are entering this one in desperation mode. Yes, Essendon started 2-6 and six last year, but it took a lot of things going right for them to make the finals from there. 
Whereas the Bulldogs entered what looked like a really cushy stretch of schedule last week, ended up losing to the Crows outside of Adelaide. It's one thing if you lose to the Crows at the Adelaide Oval. If you lose to them elsewhere, it's an issue. Yes, they're playing without Tim English for a second week in a row, but they're going to need to step up. As good of a player as he is, one absence shouldn't completely erode a team like that. Well, English is the only injury absence, but Anthony Scott is in protocols. Jamar Hagen's been omitted after a relatively quiet game against Billy Frampton. And the shock of all omissions for us this round, even more shocking than Mason Cox not getting a chance for Collingwood, is that after kicking a pair of goals and being a prominent figure most of the game near the goal square, Josh Shackey has been left out of the side by Luke Beveridge. I don't understand that one at all. Instead, the three new ins for the Bulldogs compared to last week are Rourke Smith in the center of the ground, and on the interchange bench, Latham Vandermeer and Mitch Fluffball Wallace. For the Bombers, Darcy Parrish and Jaden Laverde passed their fitness test, so they'll be staying at the side. However, Brandon Zirk Thatcher and Dylan Scheel have been omitted. I'd say Scheel is the more notable of the two with ease. It's a milestone game for a Bomber as well as Canadian-born Andrew McGrath, or as we would probably say it back in North America, McGrath, is playing his 100th game. And if Nick Hind is able to get in, it would be his 50th. Scoring just 62 against the Crows is obviously cause for concern for the Bulldogs. Marcus Bonampelli finished with one goal, but just 16 disposals, though he did have seven tackles. Aaron Naughton had just eight disposals to go with his two goals and five tackles. So both of them are looking to bounce back, and I don't think there are too many better teams to bounce back against than one who the 93 points they allowed last week were the fewest they've allowed this year. Although, again, it required Collingwood kicking freakishly well to do so. I thought despite having a win to their name, last week was still the best game the Bombers have played this year. Can they string something together? Did they actually figure something out defensively? Or was it just really good midfield and forward play that kept them in it? The other guy who I thought was a little bit quiet last week by his standards was Bailey Smith. Nobody else would consider 29 disposals and 631 meters gained a poor performance. But considering that we see Smith regularly get up towards 40 touches, it was a bit of a lesser performance for him, though he still played decently well. I will qualify that by saying that it was Tom Libertore's best game, so maybe he got some of the touches that Baz may have gotten otherwise with a better showing from him. Bailey Dale also did have a solid game last week. 32 disposals and a ridiculous 788 meters gained. But the Bulldogs are going to be looking for a better game all around, and I think the concerns would really start swirling for them if they lose this one. Whereas for Essendon, at the very least... If they lose this game and fall to 1-6, and six, I don't think it's going to change anyone's perception of them too radically. The Bulldogs are favored by 18.5 in what is technically a home game for them, considering their dull performance last week and continuing questions on their goal kicking. I understand why it's not a bigger margin, though I do expect the full forward line, which will probably include Bonham Pelly again, to get more action against Essendon, who you have said regularly have defenders that move the ball up the field well, but aren't as good, you know, defending. I think this 18 and a half line is actually pretty fair. And I think had the Bulldogs played better last week, it would be higher. I expect another big game from Sam Draper in the ruck for Essendon, especially considering that he's up against Stefan Martin and not Tim English. 
getting hitouts to advantage will probably be one of the best ways for the Bombers to create scoring chances. Round 7 concludes with a top 4 clash at the Sydney Cricket Ground, which should be a damn good looking matchup as well in terms of uniforms between the Swans and the Lions. Both teams are 5-1. and one. The Lions have an 8% edge over the Swans, so they are in 3rd, while Sydney are in 4th. This game will begin in the final minutes of April out west in the U.S., 11.40 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. In the Eastern Time Zone, 2.40 a.m. on Sunday, May 1st, and it'll be a late afternoon start in New South Wales at 4.40 p.m. These teams unfortunately meet just once, and unfortunately met just once last year, a round one matchup where the Swans pulled off a massive, at the time, 31-point upset. As the year went on, that looked like less and less of an upset, although to win at the Gabba at all is impressive, and to do it by 31 is pretty mind-blowing, although we've seen teams do it in finals in recent years. Okay, but we expect the Lions to go out in straight sets. That's nothing new. That said, there are going to be some big ins and outs this week, and as much as both these teams play well at home, maybe the home field advantage won't be enough for the Swans, considering that they'll be missing both Patty McCartan and Logan McDonald. Both of them suffered concussions last week, or at least entered concussion protocol. I don't know if McCartan was fully concussed, but considering how many times he's been before, you don't push it. Sam Reed's a prominent name returning this week for the Swans, but the bigger inclusion is definitely Tom Papley. He's recovered from his hamstring injury and will be making his season debut. And with Logan McDonald being concussed, having Papley on the side could be a particularly important boost in the forward lines, even though the Swans have. No lack of scoring ability. Who knows, maybe Ollie Floyd will live up to his milestone playing in his 100th game and back a few himself. James Bell omitted, although he's listed as one of the potential emergencies. Wouldn't be shocked for him. Meanwhile, for the Lions, Kai Lohman suffered a high ankle sprain last week, and that's going to keep him out for six weeks. No changes for them, though, because Jackson Pryor, who was the medical sub last week, was moved up to the interchange bench. Their medical sub will be one of Devin Robertson, Nakaya Cockatoo, James Madden, or the former basketballer Tom Fullerton, because you always have to mention that Tom Fullerton used to play basketball. Also, Mark Blitzovs did steeplechase. Now, as for the actual matchup, I don't think it needs that much introduction. We know both these teams' stories. Sydney's fast youth field rise last year. Brisbane has been dominant over the last few years. Both these teams have not just finals aspirations, but grand final aspirations. This is the sort of game that could determine who's playing at home to get there, could factor into determining who ends up in the top four and has the double chance. All of that is up for grabs. I don't think we need to explain the implications of this game at all to most of our listeners, although I do hope we have listeners that are trying to familiarize themselves with the sport. So if you are new to this, just understand these are two of the best teams, and this should be a really good game. Who's one particular player that you want to see stand out this week? For me, it's Hugh McCluggage. Considering all the talk around him going into this season as one of the favorites for the Brownlow medal and, and the good start he had, he's been awfully quiet these past few rounds. Now, some of that may be because the focus has gone to Lockie Neal in a lot of respects, as he might be in even better form than he was when he won the Brownlow for himself just two years ago. But also McCluggish just hasn't seen as much of the ball. And with how much and how quickly the Swans attack through their midfield, I am looking forward to seeing how the Lions respond to that with their own unit. 
Apparently, Hugh McCluggage is only an inch taller than Daniel Rich. That does not sound right. He looks far bigger. And speaking of Rich, he's one of my favorite players in any back line to watch with just how accurately and how long he kicks. I'm not sure if the Lions will try to answer the Swans fast pace by trying to slow things down with longer kicks out to the sides or whether they want to try to counter similarly to how the Swans do. We said going into last week when Sydney went to Launceston to play Hawthorne that we thought the Hawks counterattack would play right into the Swans' hands, but that wasn't really the case for the first three quarters. Since you picked players for Brisbane to watch, I'm going to go with a couple for Sydney. First off, Isaac Heaney, uncharacteristically quiet last week in the win over Hawthorne. I expect him to bounce back in full. You say he was quiet despite having one of the Mark of the Week nominations and kicking a goal late. Absolutely. Still finished with just 15 disposals and only one goal for a guy who usually gets multiple. It was a quieter game for him. Honestly, that's pretty fair. He was playing more forward, and it took a while for the Swans to decide to operate through anyone other than Buddy, which which makes no sense. They've done so well because of the sheer quantity of options they have. The quantity of high-quality options. And the other guy I'll throw in is Dane Rampey, especially without Patty McCartan there. I've noticed Rampey tends to be someone who gets better as the game goes on, usually starts a bit slow, ends up with a couple of big defensive plays late. I'm wondering if maybe they'll be asking more of him throughout the full 80 minutes this time or how exactly he's going to make his impact. But he always seems to come up with a key late game play whenever it's needed. Game on also to Patty's younger brother, Tom. He's played admirably himself, but I'm going to be really interested watching how he plays with someone else with him in that back line. Sydney favored by three and a half. That seems like a pretty appropriate line considering the major absences for the Swans, but their home field advantage. This is not one that I'd want to bet. This is one that I just want to watch as a fan. And I will. This one should be unequivocally good for footy. I'd be very surprised if this ends up being a lopsided game either way. And I really hope we aren't jinxing it because I've got high expectations for this matchup. I know you do too. I'm sure we'll be breaking it down extensively. We didn't do a ton of breaking down and analyzing of this matchup right now because a lot of the hype and the lead up to it speaks for itself. But we'll definitely have a lot to say afterwards. Whereas the other big game for this round, Geelong Fremantle, I think had more to set the stage because of the Dockers rise and the key absences this week. Nonetheless, those are definitely the two marquee games of the round. Although... As we've seen repeatedly, something might sneak up on us. You know, all 16 people who have predictions on AFL.com had the Bulldogs beating Adelaide last week. So someone's going to surprise us this week. Do you have any any bold prediction or bold upset pick this week? I feel like Bulldogs-Bombers should be within Essendon's grasp, but that they won't come through in the end. And then there's just the huge question mark around how the conditions are going to impact the game in Cairns between the Saints and the Power. If I had to give any one upset pick, I would say that Port Adelaide might just do something really weird. Now, I don't think the Gold Coast Suns are going to win against Collingwood in the G in the round seven afternoon slot again. But with the skill that Jared Witts has, anything is possible considering how many balls they might get to advantage out of stoppages. I don't necessarily see any of the heavy underdogs winning. I think... Of the teams that are underdogs by more than 10 points, Fremantle has the best shot. 
I still don't think they're going to necessarily, but I think they're going to keep it close. In fact, I think that most of these point spreads should be wider, which means we're going to be proven wrong. There's going to be some huge upset out of nowhere. And I'm looking forward to that. The unpredictability is part of what makes this so fun. And we look forward to analyzing all that unpredictability. Following the round, we look forward to having you tune in again with us for our round seven recap early next week. Throughout the week and throughout the season, you can read our thoughts on all things AFL at Americans Footy on Twitter. You can also follow our personal accounts. I am at BenjaminHK01, and I might add some things about the West Coast Eagles, maybe talk about some NHL action as the Stanley Cup playoffs near, and maybe just reflect on my time as an undergraduate student coming to an end as I am graduating from UC Berkeley in two and a half weeks' time. Show off. I already got my college diploma nearly five years ago. By the way, I went to the University of San Francisco, so if you're Australian and you know about a lot of Australian basketball players going to St. Mary's, we're in the same conference. We actually have had a couple of Australian players, though not on the same volume that the Gales have had. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You can hear me talking about baseball on there, or I guess not here unless you're using a text-to-speech thing. Talk about hockey some as well. Probably bring up some NFL draft commentary because that's kind of snuck up on us. That starts Thursday night. And you can always find Grian Harambe, the one and only footy cat, on Instagram at catnamedgrian. Thanks again for tuning in. Join us next time to see just how wrong everything you just heard will be. One thing that's fun for me is listening to a podcast previewing games after the games have been played and kind of comparing the expectation versus reality. So feel free to do that with us. We'll see you around.